And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, Streaming and 3CR Digital, Podcast or Audio On Demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast number two program in Solidarity Breakfast summer season. Happy New Year and thanks for spending some time with me. In today's program, we're going to revisit the cashless debit card, that yoke around the neck of many on social welfare. It is important because when the election comes, you must remember that the federal LNP government has its fingers poised to roll out this unequal and disenfranchising system across Australia. We have some facts for you to consider today. Following up, we hear from Tony Birch, First Nation writer, in conversation about his book, The White Girl. Listen to the end for a killer reading he gives from the book. A big joke is delivered by the fabulous Nikki Berry at the recent Greenleaf fundraiser night, which will forever be called the Bi joke. And we follow all with a word from Fiona McLeod about her book Easy Lies and Influence that documents the scandals and corruption making a steady rise in the halls of political power. Have you been caught behind? Your maiden been bowled over? Not a streaker in sight? Tune in to 3CR Summer Programming for a summer series of a different kind. One of the best things that has grown up during the COVID years has been the coalition called LIFE, or Living Incomes for Everyone. One of the things they are doing is informing across the battle lines of social justice fights through a series of tutorials given by experts from the grassroots. Now, one of the events covered the Indu card or the cashless debit card, which is a system where the federal government is handing over the distribution of social welfare, the dole, to a big corporation who drip feeds recipients and remove people's autonomy. But I'll let the experts speak. Firstly, we have uh, Catherine Wilkes, who is the convener of the No Cashless Welfare Debit Card group, which is very prominent on Facebook with thousands of followers. The second is Amanda Smith. Amanda comes from the Sano 7 group uh, based here in Melbourne. So, Amanda, would you like to kick off? Uh, the Sano 7 was called the Sano 7 because a Liberal Party member decided to call us seven Sano ratbags one day. That's how we got our name. We were all uh, seven women who decided to fight the card uh, just over six years ago. For the Sano 7, we do uh, policy analysis and research. We provide information to media, other writers, bloggers and people regarding the card from a cardholder perspective and from a policy perspective. Thank you. And Catherine, your turn. Okay, so um, I started uh, No Cashless Debit Card Australia six years ago. And um, yes, we were being heavily trolled by LMP at the time. And that's where I met Amanda and became part of the Say No 7 as well. 
And uh, so we've teamed up and I've concentrated on um, the last three years when the card came to the region I was living in, I had to make a decision were we online or whether we were on the ground. And we went on the ground and I um, assisted card holders trying to get them information, direct them to the senators and try and help them get off the card, which we got quite a few people off. Um, we've done a lot of protests. I've spoken at four Senate inquiries. Oh, we've done petitions, media, television, the works. Um, we're just not going to shut up no matter what they say because um, that's what they've tried to do in my region quite a lot is shut me up and it hasn't worked. I've been stalked and surveilled and trolled and I'm not going to shut up. If you could describe for us, Catherine, the impact on the day-to-day -day lives of these cards. Okay, so for somebody who's initially, when they first get their card, they, they get quite shocked. Um, it impacts them in, in across so many ways. So health-wise, it affects your mental health. It causes stress leading to people going to their doctors, getting a mental health plan, being put on medications for depression, anxiety, and they, they, recluse, they, they recluse themselves anyway naturally once they've dealt with the failure of the cards in public and had to put up with, in the beginning up here, some very horrible judgmental comments from people standing behind them at checkouts. Um, that, and then not being able to get into community events because the money's on the card and the kids can't take part, so that upsets kids. So parents withdraw to... In, in the Hinkler region, you can actually do online shopping with Coles. So I know quite a few families that don't go shopping anymore. They do the online stuff to, so to save any embarrassment and any more shame that they've copped in the past. With the health issues, it can go further as well. We did have a young mum who was at an at-risk pregnancy when she got her card and even her doctors um, were trying to advise Indu to, no, don't do this. It's going to affect her pregnancy. And, of course, Indu staff laughed at her and said, oh, no, it's not going to cause you any problems. Well, it did. She ended up going to hospital with a preemie birth. And then she had the indignity with a hospital social worker trying to sort out a preemie baby and trying to activate her cashless debit card with the hospital social worker and the social worker from Indu. And, I, and, and it's, it's been shown in other regions that you get lower birth weights in pregnancy, higher mortality rates in utero and um, some of the other physical health impacts. <laughs> I've seen it with my friends that are on the card here, right? One in particular, 33-year-old Jodie, she had a heart attack. She's been diagnosed with a condition called broken heart syndrome, which is caused by stress. It's a very re real issue. So people are dealing with um, the mental stress, the physical stress, and they also have to deal with, in the community, because of the, the media ramp up of welfare bludgers and, and stuff like that, there's always the problem. When the card fails, all eyes are on you. Do you know what I mean? And that is very intimidating for a lot of people. But it also causes problems at school with the kids because when, when the kids can't participate um, or they can't get access to secondhand school uniforms and they can't go on excursions, right, um, we've had kids, one of the families I know, all of her kids were in counselling. And when you get seven-year-olds come home and say, are we poor because they're excluded, it has an effect on the whole family because rent failures, can't pay car loans. And, and I've, I've watched 
I've had people in my lounge room broken, in tears, shaking, that just don't know what to do. They couldn't pay their rent. They were being evicted. Three kids, not sure what to do. You know what I mean? It's breaking people. And this is the most inhumane policy and they just will not listen or acknowledge any of the human impacts on on the card at all. Yeah, just quickly, I'd just like to say the evaluation report showed that there are more vulnerable children now in the trial regions than there were before the card rollouts. Um, you know, we know from in, from the Stronger Futures report, more neglect, more more vulnerable children in basics cards region as well. But I'm saying the evaluation supports the question that children are being impacted. Okay, with the way that I've seen children impacted, being excluded from community events um, and putting parents in a position where the children cannot partake and they have to stand there and watch other children partake right breaks the parents heart but it's also once the child's like well why can't I be involved and you try and explain that to three four five six seven year olds they don't get it it causes harm well school uniforms people can't access school uniforms you know what I mean the thing I found like I had another family why should a 12 year old boy be propping his mum up and trying to look after his youngest siblings when the whole family's impacted and falling apart and he's trying to keep it all together to keep his mum strong as well I saw that um the barriers to housing it's it's putting families in tents and I'm not joking uh you know we did a fun like a, a donations run for a family that were living in a tent and they were moving from place to place and then they they moved to another place and they just got all their stuff together and it was all in the tent and the tent went up in flames and lost everything, you know. Um, so the problem is with when people can't pay rents, they lose their housing. And oh, the, the pressure on parents, but the impact on the kids, they know that they're being segregated. They know that they're being left out. And that's going to have a serious impact down the line. One of my other people that were on the card was concerned that because of the impact of not being able to partake at school and in daycare, right? She put it this way. How come my two-year-old is going to be held back, right? How come my five-year-old misses out? This is going to have serious long-term effects on their education when they can't be included. Their self-esteem, everything. This is, yeah, it's just a massive impact on the whole family. We know, for, we know from testimony from cardholders themselves that in schools, when you're when you're using the Indu card, they're actually using a separate FTOS terminal um, to process the Indu Indu transactions. Okay. We know that um, TAFE students and university students are also impacted, unable to buy graduation photos and gowns. Anything secondhand is impacted as a result. Photographs, end of school photographs. Um, these these are all the impacts on children as well and more well, frustration for parents. Okay, school sports day, you'd think every kid would be involved. Yep, Camps. sports day they will. But in Seduna, for instance, after school sports day, they have a barbecue, they put on little soft drinks and everything for the kids, but the parents couldn't partake because they didn't have cash. So you're talking about I had one parent having to, to drag a five-year-old autistic child away along with other parents, right, because half that town is on the card. So those kids were all excluded from the end of, um, school, you know, sports day events, um, that really hammers into a kid that you're different and you can't have what the other kids can have, even if it is only a fruit cup and a sausage sizzle. You know what I mean? That's damn right rude and it's just, it's, it's un-Australian as far as I'm concerned. 
Um, yeah, I, I hear it amplifies that there is a social aspect to the segregation. It's not just an economic apartheid; it's actually a social apartheid as well. And we use that word very specifically because it does mean to separate, to segregate. And the and people on cards are being segregated. This legislation is an act of seg- of segregation in practice, no matter what the government calls it. We call it socioeconomic apartheid um, in in fora that we discuss this on, um, in casual relaxation. People trying to get people to understand what the word apartheid actually means in practice. Can you know they think South Africa, um, well, it's like that but worse. You know, we have people, um, something I wanted to add is that we've had parents who have lost children unable to buy a funerary urn, okay, because the card declined, having to request permission for a cash transfer for a funerary urn to bury her twins. You know, to be denied by a stranger from a corporation that you don't know a funerary urn. We have another woman, a christening gown, secondhand christening gown, to not be able to be the parent that you know you can be for your children because somebody else is pulling the strings on what you can do. It's absolutely devastating. You know, children go through every crisis their parents go through, plus their own crisis as well at school, in the playground, you know, so it's the double impact on children. I hope that answers the question. I just wanted to add what I said in chat, that Hinkler region is now number one in Queensland for homelessness. It started as number three before the trials. So the impact, we've got mums in tents, we've got mums sleeping in caravans and on couches. One woman recently had a caesarean section whilst couch surfing because the card refused, you know, her rental situation was a private one as opposed to a leased one and Inju wouldn't release the money for her to pay cash rent. Initially it was supposed to be to reduce social harms within the community in regards to alcohol, drug and gambling issues. However, then it moved on to, we had Twiggy Forest in the media on the ABC at one stage saying that it would stop men from being pedophiles, which really raised an outlaw, right? Um, Then we had Anne Rustin saying that it's a literacy tool. (laughs) Um, However, all I see is bankruptcies, um, broken credit ratings and damaged rental histories and evictions. I don't call that a good literacy tool, right? Mm-hmm. Then um, it's supposed to uh, encourage welfare recipients to get off welfare, right? Um, but it can't create any jobs except for those that, you know, get the contracts like impact employment agencies and stuff like that then it's good contracts for those people, but not for the average Joe that's out here trying to get a job. So basically I've heard um, from Kununara, one of the, the staunchest supporters um, of one of the First Nations people, he was saying that um, basically it's to, to, be, to bring about total behavioural change. The justifications in the legislation uh, is to reduce social harms and reduce the amount of money being spent, uh, welfare money they call it, being spent on alcohol and drugs. Um, every evaluation to date has shown that that's not happened. Um, in fact, the, the minuscule amounts, 85 point 
84% of people have had no positive impact after six years. Um, the very limited amount of change that has happened has been attributed to alcohol bans and other forms of, of um, suppression of, of alcohol purchases in communities and even communities themselves are saying that. It's noteworthy to say that Sejuna Drug and Alcohol Centre have also come out and said the card hasn't worked to solve any of the problems that they had. So um, it's not just us saying these things, it's the government's own evaluation. Um, but we have been, you know, we've been called uh, pedophile supporters. We've been called crime supporters. Um, people have to understand that people who have jobs, people in paid employment are on the card right now. This is not something that only impacts Aboriginal people. They make up 40% of people on cashless debit cards right now. It doesn't just affect single mums who do make up a larger proportion of of people on the cards. It affects everybody across the board. We have a working mother who gets $15.00 a fortnight, who is on the card, a full-time working mother, you know, who is on the card. So this card is a blanket approach. There is no assessment of your condition done. All right. So when they say a justification like financial tools, if somebody is given like $40 a day to live on, even the financial experts and said that amount of income is not enough to run a budget, it's not enough to create a budget, let alone to plan and to save or to do anything else. There's this kind of thinking is an ideological perspective and it's a neoliberal ideological perspective and, as we, as many people know, a religious perspective on poverty, yeah. a particular religious perspective. The last formal notification we received in Parliament was that the card is costing 12000 per person to initiate. <clears throat> that is a cumulative total cost of the announced spending. Um, it is not a yearly sum. The yearly sum works out to around, we assume, nine to a thousand dollars, nine hundred to a thousand dollars per participant. But going by the last Senate estimates, this year, nineteen and twenty alone, it cost over six and a half thousand dollars per participant. We do have all the data and the estimates figures, but those three sums that the senators um, admitted to in Senate estimates are not evidence of the cumulative cost of that year's spending on CDC. Only the only the contractual obligations that department were required to provide. Uh, all spending charges, all the, and costs of the CDC are now not for not for publication. The government has made it secret. Regarding Andrew Forrest, uh, one Andrew Forrest is a multi billionaire. He doesn't need our money, and it's never been about money for Andrew. Andrew Forrest. It has been about control. And when you see that he has a senator, a former employee of Mindaroo is now sitting in the Senate, you understand what I mean by about power and control. I have met at a Senate hearing, um, you know, uh, Senator O'Sullivan, and he has, in, and he's entitled to his view as any member of parliament is. Um, but yeah, to have somebody from Andrew Forrest's own network sitting in the Senate and having him and Mindaroo continue to push, say, for people like Jacinta Price to be entering into federal politics is a, is a great concern because this is where the power um, and the power play and control of private corporate interest over government policies comes into play. And that's our biggest concern. He doesn't need the money. He does need the power and control over our government 
which Mindaroo, being Australia's very own little circo at the moment, especially out west, um, you know, it, it is a problem for us. We find that a significant problem. But Andrew yeah, himself and the Liberal Party are not shareholders in Inju. I have to say this out loud. I have the list. I know who the shareholders are. And if you are a member of ACOBA, which is the customer-owned banking association in Australia, then you are very likely a shareholder and participant owner of Inju Limited. We beat the card the first time round. They couldn't get it through the first time round and then they moved the goalposts and made it a trial and reintroduced the legislation and they got it through only because of an independent called Tim Storer um, who I went all the way to Canberra to meet and then at the last minute he didn't want to see me because I knew he'd done a deal then. You know what I mean? And at that stage was 5,000 people already on the card. We've done pre-poll every state and federal election. We have people, volunteers out at pre-poll. Uh, to give out information and stuff like that. We'll be doing that again when the election comes. This September we're doing an action because we know now that the banks are going to be involved and they're already part of a nearly two-year running group called the Technology Working Group. Government has been trying to privatise welfare payment systems and is using the banks to do that. Again, this TWG is being run by not as a government so it doesn't have to report to government. It's not being run as a government program. It's being on the side, but it is being chaired by Senator O'Sullivan. So from and Mindaroo is a part of that group as well as all the major banks. So I'm going to spill the beans. We are going to do some bank actions in September and we're going to need everybody's help. We... Um, we're going to get as many people as we can out the front of banks in September on a date we're not going to release just yet. And we are onboarding people now into, into our September volunteers group for that end. That is the sole purpose of this particular volunteers group is to, um, is to get people involved in this one day, as many people as we can across Australia to raise awareness of, of the issue of the bank's involvement in INJU. And, you know, um, given that it is income management, not just cashlessness. This is not just welfare in another form. This is management of your life through your income by a third party. People need to be aware of that. And that's what we're taking to the streets. It's one day in September. It's not a lot to ask. After six years of hauling us, we need help to get this job done, to raise this awareness. And, um, it's not a lot to us. We want to make as much hay as we can off that one particular day and raise the awareness in the general public like we have with the Inju card. We have done a lot of work. We have watched the narrative, not just in, in Parliament change, but the narrative in the street change. Well, CPSU, I'd like to say thank you very much for all your support for the last six years. <laughs> so we do have a lot of union support already, but it's small. <laughs> All the way along, we've had the support of state ALP and all the way along, we've had the support of the Greens continuously, right? They've been, the Greens have been vehemently opposed to the card all the way through. We had to sort of like, in the beginning, ALP was supporting the trials, but then the day that I handed Bill Shorten the terms and conditions that were given to cardholders, when his policy advisor went through it, they backed out of supporting the trials and then they started voting against the card since 2017. And now they've become very public against the card and they've, they've stepped up and said that they will scrap it 
if they're elected. Independence, Andrew Wilkie has been very much opposed since the outset yes. and has been a wonderful support. Um, Helen Hayes has also spoken out in, in, in Parliament several times against the card. Um, you know, and we've also had Senator Rachel Seawett and Senator Sue Lyons, who have actually been our hands on with cardholders on the ground um, nonstop since the beginning. That support has been invaluable and the consistency of their messaging, their willingness to stand up in Parliament and call out the lies that are being told there has been you know, one of the things that has given us a lot of faith and hope that, for change. ALP's bipartisanship was withdrawn only in 2017, but consistently along the way, we have watched their evolutionary process process and we've been a part of that informing process um, there are no saints in politics we're not naive and we're not stupid but ALP's position on the card we absolutely and thoroughly support uh, just to smash this card to end compulsory income management in Australia is the goal of everyone working in our field I mean it is the goal and they've just come out and said that's what they're going to do in order to pass this election uh, One Nation do support the card, Danielle, unfortunately. They have voted for it every single time. And the last debate, uh, Pauline Hanson actually stood up and said that welfare recipients have no legal rights. Well, Jackie Lambie voted for the card initially, and she has a very strong tie in relationship to Andrew Forrest and Matthew O'Sullivan that we're not comfortable with. She voted against the bill this time because the NLP didn't, didn't provide all the things that they were supposed to provide along with the, um, with the program when it rolled out. And she was able to see the correlations between the abandonment of people on cards in basics cards regions to, the, to what was happening again under Induke cards. So there's hope there. Trust, another question altogether, but there's hope there. If not for Centre Alliance, we would have no CDC in Australia today. Sterling Kruf left the building on vote night rather than, yeah. you know, rather than... Um, be seen to be supporting the Liberal vote. Rebecca Sharkey blocked amendments in the House of Representatives that would have seen the card be blocked there. And Sterling Griff voted with the NLP on the night. Uh, for the last two bills now, Tim Storer and Centre Alliance have both uh, been the single vote deciding it. This program has never passed on merit, not once since 2015, not on evidence, not once since 2015. Um, it has only ever passed on the basis of backroom deals. And that is really important to know. All the evidence supports us, supports the cardholders, which we see tonight. There are three different exemptions from the law that INJU have. They're an untouchable entity. Cardholders have no access to sue them and, no, and very little, except for maladministration legislation in each state, to sue the government at all for any costs. Um, so change will have to come from within the parliament. Definitely through a federal ICAC, the relationship between the National Party and this card and how this card was implemented and the nature of contracts and the financial situations will come out. And, and I'm very pleased to say that's exactly what Anthony Albanese has suggested will happen under a Labor government. So whether you like Labor or not, if you don't want this card, we're, we're stuck with the one, two ALP Greens for, in our position. And from our perspective, ALP primary vote is the most important pro, you know, vote that we can do this election. We can have our idealistic what for, wish for government uh, any time after that, but to stop this policy, to get to the bottom of it um, and to 
bring it out into the open like RoboDebt was bought, we're going to need to elect a new government. There's no other choice. You said you'd meet me at the corner of Russell and Victoria when I arrived, you weren't there. So I opened up a bottle of red I brought to share and sat upon the monument stairs. My battle's fought and won, a victory's long time coming. An eight-hour day, an honest working wage. It's just history sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument drinking my day away. Sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument thinking what would the ghosts of a great-grandparent say? Across the road trades hall and behind me the old Melbourne jail I bought a souvenir mug to drink out of with the dead mask of Edward Kelly Next parting word Life. Where in heavens are you? What the hell am I to do? And how on earth did it end up this way? Sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument, drinking my day away. Sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument, thinking what would they say? Sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument, drinking my day away. Sitting on the steps of the eight-hour monument, thinking what would the ghosts of a great grandparent say? Listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're back with Annie on the number two program in Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. Tony Birch is an acclaimed writer, a First Nations man, and this year he joined a conversation about his book, The White Girl. 
Part of the conversation finished with a reading from the book, which I swear could bring tears to your eyes. Um, so let's warm up a little bit. I'd like to begin by um, saying I've, I've done a little bit of research on you and your bloodlines. They carry white Irish, Barbadian convict, Afghani immigrant and Aboriginal heritage, which sounds to me like you are the quintessential story of this land. How do you reconcile all these identities and which one of them, if any, uh, plays a m more significant role in your artistic expression, your poetries and your stories? Well, I suppose, um, I mean, on, to be honest, growing up, I've never had a conflicted sense of my identity. And that's partly, I think, because that my identity is really linked to, to being in family. So when I think of my identity, I've, I've always thought of my, my place in my family, my extended family and my lineage. So um, it wasn't until I suppose more recent years that people, I suppose, ask or require us to, to choose or to decide to be one thing or another. So I really felt that growing up, I was just part of a really important, um, very mixed family. So that, yeah, in my family, not only do we have different so-called identities ethnically, but we have strong um, Muslim family members, mm -hmm. strong Christian family members, you know, so we had uh, all sorts of mixes. I suppose that what my writing is dominated by it is, is certainly um, issues to do with my Aboriginal sense of self, which is very central to me, have been important um, in my writing, but... I think more generally, and when you think about those mixes of people in my genealogy, my writing is really to try and deal with issues of inequality and injustice. So that whether I be thinking of the um, abuses of Aboriginal people in my family, or whether I be thinking of the abuses of someone like, um, I'm a direct descendant of a, of a man, um, Prince Moody, who was um, enslaved in Van Diemen's land, Mm -hmm. here from Barbados in the 1850s and I feel a very strong connection to a person who um, yeah was was forced to move halfway around the world and leave a family in Barbados and then was enslaved in Australia for 14 years so that connection is very important but to be honest growing up and I think this is the case for a lot of Aboriginal people who grew up in the inner cities of Australia is that I'm also very strongly attached to the notion of class, which a lot of people, you know, sort of forget about in Australia. So um, I grew up working class and, yeah, working class for Aboriginal people, for, for poorer white people, um, mm. there are a lot of affinities there, which I think people have lost the sense of. So that I'm very interested in the notion of in a country like Australia, which claims to be, you know, an equitable um, country, it's not clearly. And one, one of the inequities um, is about the difference between people who have money and people who don't have money. And the people who don't have money are, are people in my family, you know, whether they came here from, from the Punjab, as um, one of my family members did, or from Barbados or from as convicts. Um, they've always been marginalised people. So they're the people I write about. Um. So this, this book, you write about the ties and the relationships between Aboriginal women and their daughters and their granddaughters uh, and their friends. And you brilliantly juxtapose the softness, um, um, sorry, the, the, the softness and, and, and the tenderness and the love between mm -hmm. mother-daughter and between 
grandmother and daughter, you juxtapose that so beautifully against the hatred and the racism in Australia's colonial past, um, you know, with, with Sergeant Flo and, and uh, the way the system, the, you know, feels the act and, and taking custody and, and, you know, thinking that they're protecting families when they're tearing them apart. But you've, you've, how, how do you do that? How, uh, first of all, why did you choose to write through the lens of uh, women? And how do you do your research to find Odette's voice inside of you, the voice of the grandmother caring for her granddaughter? I, I've, it's just, I could believe that it was Odette. It was a woman grandmother talking. How were you able to, to achieve that? Well, you, you never met my grandmother. Um, <laughs> I think firstly, the reason I chose to, to focus on women mm. is that um, I had done research, in fact, that, so I worked as a historian. I, yeah, I, I did a PhD in history and, and taught Aboriginal history at Melbourne University. And one of my main research projects was to look at the way that Aboriginal women had been, you know, the really strong grassroots activists in Australia for all of the 20th century or a lot of the 20th century. And part of their um, political campaigning was around letters, was around writing. So I'd done a lot of research on Aboriginal women's writing. So the sorts of um, things that they were demanding, you know, caring for their children, not having their children stolen from them, et cetera, I knew that. Uh, but more importantly, I think that one is I wanted to focus on women because I see women in my life um, and particularly older women as being really heroic and very courageous and leading our families and communities. Mm-hmm. Two is that you're, you're exactly right that in choosing to have women as the, the central characters of the book, I then had to make a decision about their relationship to colonial violence. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision well before I started the novel that although, you know, the violence is on the periphery of this novel all the time, we know the history that these women are dealing with and we know the potential for violence is, is ever-present in Odette and Sissy's life. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want it to really penetrate in the sense that I wanted the novel to be a novel about love and tenderness and in a really tactile, physical way, as much as a spiritual way. So, you know, everyone has talked about the what are called the bath scenes in the novel, and I wanted to convey the the the, the beauty and and touch between Odette and Sissy. And really, to be honest, that is drawing on. Yeah, I didn't find it hard to write with women and, and girls as the central characters because I was drawing on my own history and experience of, of being surrounded by women in my life. So, yeah, my grandmother and my mother, um, aunties, uh, my sisters, and I have four daughters and they're, they're adults now. And all of the ways that they express love is ways that I've experienced. And, and it doesn't have to be, by the way, through women. So... Today, I each week, I take care of one of my grandchildren. And today, it was my grandson, Archie, who's two. And, you know, it's the same. He loves to rub my back when I'm hugging him. So I was just carrying him. From, oh, he fell over and I picked him up and I was taking him to the other room. And I was holding him and he just involuntarily almost just starts rubbing your back. So I love that. And I suppose learning that from women it's also something for me is important as a man so that um so that my 
my love for my grandchildren is, is, is physical yeah. as well. And um, so it's about how I think physical touch really matters. And as we find out in the novel, it matters to women such as another character, Wanda, who, who doesn't experience the touch of women in her life, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and caressing. Yeah. And it really almost destroys her. One of the issues that I would say to my work is that all of my writing, and yeah, the, the word is often discussed as political in the sense that all of my writing deals with the issues of oppression in different ways and in a way that really I want to express to readers that the people on the margins of society need to be central. We need to put a focus, a lens on people who we ignore and look at their lives in a more enriched way so that um, I'm, I'm really interested in the people that we ignore. And when I say we, even as Aboriginal people, we can ignore people outside our communities that are equally desperate. So I'm interested in my sense of this is if any person is going to act with injustice against another person, they you must do it with a full knowledge of who that person is. And it's why the notion of silence and a form of censorship is ever present in Australia. Now, you're, I think our, our viewers will know this, that one of the things that has happened in Australia with the terrible violence against refugees and asylum seekers is to try to make these people invisible, to put them in places where we can't contact them. Mm -hmm. There's been real attempts to not see the faces of these people, to not know the names of these people, to not hear the words of these people, to not know their stories. And my view is if you're going to imprison a person and you're going to torture them and treat them in, much, in such as an inhuman way, you need to look at that person in the face directly and know who they are and then can you still act? And I think yeah. we have allowed these horrible actions to occur in this country by making people invisible. So my view of issues of, of solidarity are that if if we, we focus on people who require justice, I hope and think that more of us will, will realise that what happens to people like Aboriginal people, like refugees and asylum seekers, like people from your own community, your own nation, I think people will be moved to not act or to act in a, in a way of solidarity. And I suppose then to say instances of that, I think that what I try to say to young people, and I'm not, I'm not going down the track of getting into a heavy discussion on you know, so-called identity politics, but we now have, I think, you know, in the Western world, there's been a move to, I think, sometimes quite segmented identities. And I think some of those are empowering. So we know that in communities that have really come to the fore and demanding, demanding of, of, of you know, um, Western society that people be recognised, I understand that. But in the end, if we're going to tackle the really major issues us, we need to build solidarity and networks across those communities and act together. So, you know, I saw your lovely photos at the Invasion Day rally and, you know, to see, the, to see other people than Aboriginal people on those days is absolutely vital to us to know that things are moving, you know, think there is an energy there. And likewise, of course, um, you know, in regard to thinking of issues like um, refugees and people seeking sanctuary, people seeking um, support, 
it's one of the um, major issues that I've been involved in um, in recent years. So, uh, so yeah. to put it just directly, as an Aboriginal person, if there are crimes committed against other communities on Aboriginal land, I need to take responsibility for that. And a lot of Aboriginal people think that way. When we see what's happening to other communities on our land, we see mm -hmm. that as an injustice that we have to speak out about. For people who haven't read the book, the only thing we'll say briefly, it's a book about primarily the relationship between Odette Brown and her granddaughter Sissy, and it's about Odette's um, fight and struggle to protect her granddaughter who is under threat of removal from her grandmother by a policeman, a new policeman who comes into the town of Dean, a, a man called Sergeant Lowe. And more widely, the book is about the attacks on Aboriginal people and the attempts to steal children from their family during this terrible period um, of post-war Australia when mm -hmm. so many thousands of children were, were removed. I'm just going to read a short scene that I've never read um, aloud before, and it's a scene where Odette meets another Aboriginal woman, Dolores, and Dolores talks about the experience of losing her own children. And the reason why I've chosen this is that while, as I said, that essentially this is a book about love and tenderness, I've decided to read this scene because I also want to make the point for our listeners and readers that these crimes are terrible crimes and they had a devastating effect on the women and men who were affected by them. So it's a very straightforward scene where Dolores is telling Odette what happened to her children, two daughters. The first time the welfare lady set eyes on my babies, Dolores said, I knew I had no help of keeping them. She took one hand away from the edge of the table and slammed it against her chest, alarming Odette. From that day on, that bitch followed us round like a bloodhound. My eldest girl, Colleen, she was the first to go. We'd put her in the local school, a Catholic school. My husband thought it might work in our favour, putting on the God Act. He was in the Merchant Navy. He'd been away at sea six weeks, and then his pay stopped coming to me from the company. I never knew it at the time, but he jumped ship and took off with one of the girls. I haven't laid eyes on him since. Dolores took a worn handkerchief out of the sleeve of her cardigan and wiped her nose. I ran out of money in no time. No sooner was I spotted in the line outside the house of charity that Colin was taken. They picked her up from school. Did you fight it? Odette asked. Fight? There was nothing I could do. Dolores put her fist into her mouth and bit down on a knuckle to stop herself from sobbing. You know what the nun at the school said when I fronted her? Do you want to know what she said? Odette shook her head. She said, this is best for you. We're doing this to help you as much as help your daughter. I wanted to spit in that woman's face. I went straight home and pulled a case out of the cupboard. I poked some air holes in it with a screwdriver and put my baby girl Iris in that case with her clothes. Dolores took a deep breath and then we took off. Odette wasn't certain what she'd just been told. Did you say you put your daughter in a suitcase? Dolores wiped her nose and laughed hysterically. I sure did. That was my plan. She laughed again. It didn't work out, though. We only got as far as the bus station. I was ready to jump on any bus that would get us out of the city. I didn't care where it was heading. And then, bang, the case sprung open and poor little Iris, she fell out. 
Dolores looked down as if the child was on the floor at her feet. She stood up and began circling the table. Odette wanted her to stop, both her manic pacing and the story, which she didn't want to hear, but Dolores couldn't stop. I mean, it was funny, really funny, she cried. We both laughed. My beautiful baby girl, she was giggling, and I thought I was going to wet my pants. Dolores walked over to the back door and looked outside, concerned she was being overheard. I hadn't noticed that there was a copper right there. He'd been a couple of footsteps behind us the whole time, writing a ticket for some fellow who'd parked his car illegally. The copper saw what happened, and I knew we were in trouble. I knew it, but I couldn't stop laughing. Everyone waiting for the buses, they all thought I'd gone mad. After Iris was taken away, I was put into one of those hospitals, you know, for sick people. And by then, I was mad. Swan, I think you might know this song. This one, get me out of the city.
You're with Annie on the number two program in Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. The recent Greenleaf Weekly Fundraiser Night gave us songs, poetry and comedy. Nikki Berry is a star act and I plucked out the pie jokes so you can share the fun. The other thing I think people from outside the People's Republic of Moreland don't understand, like they look at it from the outside because every type of diversity you'd ever care to name is right there in the People's Republic of Moreland. And we love it, right? Like our slogan is one community proudly diverse, right? But people from the outside don't get it, right? Like they see all of this diversity, they think we're going to be constantly in conflict with each other. Not true at all because what unites us is greater than what could potentially divide us and what unites us is pure, unadulterated hatred of the man. And when I say the man, I mean Mikey ticketing inspectors, right? Like, we do not like them at all. Honestly, I know. <laughs> Just yesterday, I, was, uh, I walked past and witnessed a um, parking inspector putting a ticket on a car that a Mikey ticketing inspector was walking back to at the end of his shift and I audibly moaned. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just like, oh, my God, that's done it for me. No, but seriously, like, we don't dig them at all, right? And this was illustrated to me very clearly a couple of weeks ago. You know, I was on the number 19 on a Saturday afternoon headed into the city and I'm on that tram with all of the diversity that exists in the People's Republic of Moreland, right? Like the nonnas, the yayas, the sitdors, we're all on that tram, we're all just tootling along, happily being one community, proudly diverse. We get to the corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street and there they are, a bunch of Mikey ticketing inspectors, right? And they're being extra sneaky because they're undercover ones. Although newsflash, just community service announcement to any Mikey ticketing inspectors that might be here this evening. <laughs> um, we're on to you, right? When six overweight middle-aged people in matching rip curl surf gear are standing at a tram stop in Brunswick, we fucking got you picked, you know what I mean? And we are just sitting there on that tram, all of us together, the nonnas, the yayas, the sit-doors and me, and as we just look at each other, we see them, and it turns out we all say asshole in the same language, right? We're just looking at each other like, ugh, assholes. And they were being extra cunning, right? Because as the tram doors open, instead of getting onto the tram so that people couldn't leap off at the other end, apparently, um, no, 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 they just waited on the side of the road and they were just pouncing on people as they got off to check that their Mikey had been validated, right? And in no time at all, they've caught some poor fella who hasn't touched on or whatever and they have surrounded him. The tram stop, we're all there looking at this. We are festering with rage, right? But fortunately, two stops before this, onto our tram had stepped a local hero, right? A cool dude, shirtless, shoeless, just eating a hand pie. Do we know what a hand pie is? It's a pie you've just got in your hand. No bag, no nothing, you're just fucking eating your pie out of your hand. <laughs> And so Morland, he is on the tram, right, and he is witnessing this too. And as we're all kind of looking at each other, totally enraged, our hero swings into action. 
just as the tram doors are about to close, he flings that pie through the doors and cops the dude that's riding the ticket right on the side of the head, right? The poor commuter that was about to get written the ticket flees the scene, right? And we as a people rise and rejoice on that tram. We are just like, fuck yes! The nonas, the yayas, the sit doors are like, yes, yes, yes! Even the tram driver was in on it, right? Like he sort of looked in the rearview mirror, dinged the bell, shut the doors and fanged it through the bloody intersection, right? It's like, yes, yes, yes. And oh my goodness, it was a beautiful community moment. Like we were feeling the love so hard, right, as we headed towards Brunswick Road. But there always has to be one party pooper, doesn't it? Always one party pooper. This other bloke, you know, with the kind of dreads and the poetry book, he's so woke it hurts, you know, and he's just kind of walked up to our local hero and he's gone, mate, 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 I just want to say something to you, mate. I just want to say something to you. I know you think you did the right thing, mate. I know you think that was cool, but that was not cool, right? You should not have thrown that pie. (laughs) And without missing a beat, our local hero turns to him and says, it's okay, mate, it was a really shit pie. (laughs) I want to go to parties. I also want good grades. I want to finish high school. Scared of making my mistakes. Wish for you to take interest. Only when I Pretty baby Bronze teeth and confidence You know all about the
You're with Annie on the number two program in Solidarity Breakfast summer season. We're going to finish this show with a word from the eminent lawyer Fiona MacLeod, who published through Monash University Press a book called Easy Lies and Influence, which documents the car crash, which is our present federal government. A great read. We had a chat when the book first came out. Yes, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're going to be speaking now with Fiona McLeod, uh, and she's the chair of the Accountability Roundtable. It's a body dedicated to keeping governments in Australia open, honest and accountable, and I bet you they're doing uh, working overtime, <laughs> and a former chair of Transparency International Australia. Now, she's just published through... Uh, Monash University Publishing uh, as part of their In the National Interest series. Not a long tome, about uh, 100 pages. Um, a, a piece called Easy Lies and Influence. Hello, Fiona, how are you? Good morning, Eddie. Yeah, um, oh, fascinating read, absolutely. I've been fuming for, ever, for quite a long time about the... Uh, a level of uh, rising corruption that's obviously uh, emanating from our federal government and our various uh, uh, instruments. Uh, but we've got plenty of uh, instruments that should be checks and balances that should be in, in play. Uh, but let's go first to your basic contention that... Uh, Everything around our government is related to the Thomas Hobbes social contract. Do you want to talk a little bit about that first? Well, sure. Um, listeners may know that Thomas Hobbes' basic premise in terms of the social contract is that we give up our individual liberties and agree to be governed uh, by voting for them in return for the promise that they will use those powers for good instead of evil. And, yeah. yeah, so what that means is that um, when you take office, a public office, such as being an elected parliamentarian, you won't use your powers to pursue personal gain, to reward your mates, to line your own pockets, to give yourself advantage, business opportunities, uh, you know, uh, um, bending the laws to suit yourself. That. This is a notion we call public trust, and it arises directly from that social contract. And unfortunately, and we're all getting mad about this, as you said, we're not seeing that. And it's boiling over into this endless frustration we have that they're just getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, it's very dangerous stuff. And uh, uh, not to mention that, uh, as you, my note taking from your, I mean, your your piece is so elegantly put together and it's so packed that, oh, you know, you so only much. need 98 pages to tell us the truth. Uh, the Australian Institute has uh, estimated that um, the corruption uh, within our system at the moment is costing $72.3 billion each year, which is 4% of the GDP. It's very expensive. It is, and, it, and it's not just the cost. I mean, $72 billion, how much of the NDIS could we fund for that? How many hospitals and, and getting our aged care system right could we do, use that money for, which is lining people's pockets? But we don't call it out. We don't call it corruption in Australia. We call it soft names like pork barrelling or rorting or, you know, um, th this notion that somebody expects that they can get into power and look after their mates or themselves. 
we just turn a blind eye to it. And I think it's because we're so overwhelmed and we're just so fed up with the corruption that we we don't know what to do about it. We turn the blind eye to it in the end because we, we're just paralysed. Well, actually, someone said to me once that uh, some people don't listen to 3CR because they don't want to know how bad things are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, 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 your your piece says the same thing to me. Oh, well, that's great. So in in the book, Easy Lives and Influence, I consider the ways our governments have embraced corruption and favoured their own interests ahead of the public interest. So we're talking about lies, bribes, purchasing influence, rewarding those who contribute to campaign funding with their favourable treatment or advancement or appointment. And this has become standard operating procedure. And I reflect in the book on the way that corruption has become normalised in our country. We, we become used to the notion that our politicians are going to lie to us or not answer questions, just walk away from press conferences without giving us the truth. And the journalists are working this out, and some of them are very good at it, but others, it takes a while to work that out. And we saw that in America too, you know, the great beacon of democracy Trump lied so often and in so many ways on so many things the journalists couldn't keep up with him. Plus he had, you know, a captive media who were repeating these lies over and over. You know, I won the election. Uh, and this fermented civil unrest. He told lies to the mob and um, encouraged them to go and seize power by force. Unthinkable. Well, you, 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 you actually said that earlier. You said fighting for good uh, rather than evil. Uh, sociopaths. You see, they're sociopathic. Well, well, this is sociopathic behaviour. It's the notion that once you are in power, you're untouchable, and uh, increasingly people are getting away with it. And so the book really calls it out and looks at the sheer number of revelations, the massive scale of rorting of public funds, and then the complete disconnect between each revelation that we hear, sports, car park, walks, hello world, paladin, each revelation, and there being any consequence. And I'm not saying there wasn't rorting in the past, but we had a concept of ministerial responsibility which meant ministers were held to account. Yeah, yeah, but also it's a pattern. It's like the whole coverlet of this government is a rot, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, now, that's what it's, that's its uh, tenor. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing billions of dollars of our funds squandered, but it also has an impact on uh, the fair markets. So say, say you and I have a coffee shop next door to each other and we're both busting our guts to make those coffee shops work and to try and um, earn ourselves an income. You suddenly score the brand-new coffee machine and outdoor furniture because you were a mate of the local politician and you contributed to their campaign, so you benefit for some grant. People understand that unfair commercial advantage that applies and is applying in the market. And we, we see how unfair it is and we see how working our guts out and yet the reward goes to the person next door because of who they know or yeah. who they paid. And, and the accountability is the rot. But before we get to the fact that this is the rot, um, oh, the, the, uh, you're, you've got a comprehensive uh, breakdown of specific uh, um, 
rorts. We'll call them rorts. Um, but there are a couple of really important things, like the public service is, are being infiltrated by um, Liberal Party toadies, effectively. So uh, political appointments into the public service is actually incredibly important. And the other one, which is uh, the employment of public servants, they're not public servants, by contract to labour, by a labour hire, which they no longer have the public service accountability clauses. They're not covered. Yep. Now, I should point out, I'm I'm turning the cannons on the federal government in this book particularly, um, and uh, you might say, well, you're a former Labor candidate, so of course you'd do that. However, this sort of corruption infiltrates all parties at all levels of government. And I saw, I just heard the last piece you were talking about, Clive Palmer. Remember the lies that were told through the, through the election? He's calling out corruption, but mm. at the same time he's spreading misinformation about death taxes and those things, which have picked up during the election campaign. have got no ability to stop those lies being told. And they do sway votes in the end because people don't know who to trust. That's fascinating, isn't it? The Electoral Commission, you point out, has no power to stop people telling lies during an election. It's it's not its job to vet paraphernalia and election material. What, What it does is make sure the election is conducted in a free and fair way. But even then, you know, during the election campaign, there were signs being put up that mimicked the Australian Electoral Commission material by Liberals. And I mean, terrible. It's yeah. absolutely and outrageous. They they, that's right. In an election in AEC um, livery, as you call it, which looked like the AEC yeah. material, they've got a direction in um, one of the Chinese languages saying, yeah. vote one Liberal. And people walk in and they think, oh, I'm being directed by yeah. the AEC to vote Liberal. It's just now, outrageous, and that's not even covering the outrage that is uh, uh, donations to... Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, and so what does a donation buy you? A donation buys you a seat on the Prime Minister's COVID Cabinet Committee to direct the way that funds, public funds are spent to ensure that we recover. And, of course, if you put a gas and fuel executive to chair that committee he's going to recommend gas and fuel projects as the way to spend our way out of out of the economic slump we're in. It's pathetic. So, and the next thing that be, I mean, because we're running out of time, mm. uh, um, the uh, they're not just stealing, but putting national security at risk because they like to present themselves as being, you know, the uh, economic uh, good managers and. Uh, uh, you know, where everything's about national security. But the business about the subs is just jaw-dropping. Oh, so people may not remember this issue about the submarines. And you, m- many people will have heard that we are billions of dollars over without rebuilding our submarines. Remember the election promise that was made initially by Tony Abbott to build submarines with a French company in Adelaide? That was there was no proper procurement process to go through that. Billions of dollars of public funds, which should have gone through a very tight procurement Yeah, because there is actually a system. Exactly. Exactly. There are systems and checks and balances, but if they're just being ignored, then there's very little we can do except hold them to account at elections. I mean, it was bad enough that it was supposed to be $20 billion in warfare, but uh, it's now uh, ballooning out to $124 billion. Yes. and if Unbelievable. You had, if you had looked at, if they had done any due diligence on corruption, 
they would have found extraordinary allegations about fouls and yes in in relation to the French company which is tied to the French government that ultimately secured that contract so it was a blatant purchase for votes but I do give some hope in the book about the structures that we need in place and how we can repair this and one of those things is of course the National Integrity Commission that was resisted by the federal government before the end of 2008 surprise surprise but the crossbenchers then, remember, for a period of time had the balance of power and forced the government to commit to one. And we've been waiting nearly three years on the promise that we would have one. But the model the government's now put up is incredibly weak because it essentially protects parliamentarians and their staff from the same sort of scrutiny and the same sort of accountability as apply to law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I know. It's just extraordinary. It's very, It's really weird. And it's also... I mean, you know, the whole idea that it should be they should be allowed to get away with it. Uh, the This particular federal government has been using legislative powers to change the rules and the laws. I mean, even down to things like uh, being allowed to detain refugees forever. And, and the secrecy that surrounds that so that we don't know and deliberately don't know all sorts of things we should know in the name of national security. But so, so the Anti-Corruption Commission, which we have to have, or an Integrity Commission that we have to have, has to be a proper model. And beyond uh, establishing that Integrity Commission, there are a raft of measures that we need to restore, resource properly and put in place. Because corruption is a risk, as I said, for all politicians at all levels of government. The minute you are a candidate for election to public office, you need money. And so there's a that's a known risk. We know that people will take money to fund their campaign. And how do they ensure they take clean money? We have to have systems around campaign contributions and perhaps even have public funding for contributions so they're not constantly buying favours or being owed favours or owing favours to those who have contributed to their campaign. Do you know there's mm. not even a code of conduct for members of parliament at the current time? Well, that, that was fairly well exposed by the uh, sexual uh, yes. um, attacks on people and the fact that the uh, staff that work at uh, parliament are so frightened about uh, their job security and so can't step forward. Yes, and so those staff are sackable without without reason, as are now senior public servants. And that just needs to sink in for a minute. The role of the public service is to act fearlessly and frankly to offer advice to government. But if you can be told that you can be sacked without cause, without notice, at a moment's notice, that must be an incredibly chilling effect on the senior public service. It's so, really, it's really disgusting. Actually, it's undermining our entire democracy. Mm. So there's a number of ways we need to fix it, and um, some of them have been committed to by um, Labor. Some of them have been committed to by the independents who are really leading the charge on this. So Helen Haynes has a bill up uh, for a national integrity commission with a number of protections in place. First, uh, championed by Kathy McGowan. Yeah, she, goodness me, was she, was she an independent that was worth getting into Parliament? Helen Haynes, fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah. I mean, you know, Zali Stegall and others have been champions too, and Rex Patrick has been pursuing freedom of information. Labor have come on board with a with a strong National Integrity Commission and also a mechanism that will allow ministers who spend in their portfolios against the advice of the department. They've got to declare that. That's part of their policy, which is a, a good step forward. Yeah, yeah, it is a good step forward because, I mean, uh, each time some incredibly awful thing is made apparent, and this is not even going into what must be not apparent, uh, like the Mackenzie woman uh, uh, and I suppose uh, Christian Porter, you know, they're outed for something in particular and then they're promoted. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's right. just and bizarre. I just, exactly. I just want to make this point. Accountability and our trust in government when they're asking us at this time to obey public health orders, to adapt our lifestyles, to address climate change, to take all sort of steps in our personal lives, that depends on trust. And if we don't trust our governments and the message they're giving us because we think it's all spin, then it's very hard to persuade a population to comply with what they need to do for their own benefit, like lock, observe lockdown rules. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a dis- disintegration of society for the benefit right, we, of a pathetic, pathetic group of people. If we're constantly being told uh, the whitewashing of the truth, if we constantly feel like we're being manipulated, then we're not listening and uh, it can boil over into that public unrest we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, pretty terrible. I, I, I'm I'm really glad to have read your uh, piece. Uh, as I said to people, it's it's called um, uh, "Easy Lies and Influence," and it's part of the Monash University Publishing uh, series in the National Interests. And I, uh, uh, you really should go. You should get. You should get it, and you should read it. Thanks very much, Andy. Thank you very much for talking to me, Fiona.
That's it for our second in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season. I hope New Year treats you well and you will be up for more scintillating revelations on next week's program. Until then, keep safe. Talk to you soon. Cheers from Annie. Here comes the sun, I say, it's alright.